0: If you would take your Bibles out and turn to Colossians chapter 3, the passage that we're looking at today is printed in the bulletin, you're welcome to follow along there, but if you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to open them and read with us, and and as you're doing so, let me just remind you that uh, during our service today, the prayer book will be coming around, and we invite everyone to write their prayer requests in the prayer book. We're uh, delighted to be praying for you as much as we can throughout the week. Uh, And at the end, that prayer book comes back to me, and and the elders and myself pray for those needs. However, uh, just a reminder, we also encourage and welcome everyone to read the other prayer requests as well, because we want that to be one more way that we can encourage all of us as a congregation to be praying for one another, lifting each other up in prayer. Uh, And loving through the ministry of prayer is one of the great ways that we support each other. Uh, So that is coming around through the service, uh, and you are welcome to use that and remember to keep it going also so it makes it all the way around. Today we're looking at uh, Colossians chapter 3. We're picking up where we left off last week. Uh, We looked at verse 18 last week, and so today we're looking specifically at verse 19. Last week, we talked specifically about the duty of wives, and today, it's the husband's turn to look at their verse and consider what the Lord is calling them to. So, let me ask you, if you're able, would you please join in standing for the reading of God's holy word today? I'm going to read Colossians three eighteen through 4, 1. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We praise you that you have been kind and in your mercy you have revealed to us everything that is necessary for life and godliness. We pray that you will now give us your spirit to open the eyes of our hearts, that we might see your truth, that we might delight in it, that we might submit ourselves to it, that we might store it up in our hearts and practice it in our lives. Lord, use your word to accomplish your purposes this day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So we'll start with just a little bit of of review because we said last week that uh, even though last week we were focusing on verse 18 about the duty of wives and and today we focus on verse 19 about the duty of husbands, uh, really we are looking at these two verses individually and over the course of two weeks because it's so important for us to hear what the Bible says about the topic of marriage and to hear each of these verses appropriately, I think we need to be able to set them in the larger context of what the Bible says about marriage. We're going to hear the heart of what these verses are saying so that we don't just try to use them or or weaponize these verses, but to understand the heart, we need to see the big picture of the Bible's picture of marriage. We said last week that, that we believe and we affirm that both men and women are created equal, with equal worth, equal value, equal dignity before the Lord. Both are blessed by God. Both are called to live for him and submit to him. Both are equal partners in the covenant of grace. Both are joint heirs of the promises of Christ. And we have said that we believe that within marriage, God calls husbands to act as the head, to be the loving leaders for their wives, and that God calls wives to lovingly submit to their husband's leadership. And the goal of this arrangement is that both husband and wife uh, will thrive, that God will be glorified as we act out together in our marriages, the drama of redemption. That is the key. Um, Brian Chapel is the pastor now of the church that I grew up in, in Illinois. And he tells a story in order to kind of give this picture of marriage. He tells a story about a time... Uh, long ago when he went rock climbing. His brother was a very accomplished rock climber and invited him to go with him. He had never been rock climbing. And so he said they spent most of the morning kind of familiarizing themselves with the equipment, going over you know basic protocols, some of the basic fundamentals of how to actually climb up a rock. And he said they did some small practice climbs on very small rocks, and then it was time to do a real rock climbing route together. So they went over to this bigger route that they were going to attempt together, and they got all harnessed up, and and they roped up together, and they started. And he said that as they went, that depending on the nature of the route and the obstacles that they were facing and and the the whole picture of what they were doing, he said there were certain times when his brother went in front, and, and he would follow behind him in his footsteps. And there were other times when he would actually go in front, and his brother would sort of lead from below, giving him directions. So there were times one was in front, there were times the other in front, but he said no matter what, it was clear to all that his brother was still the leader. His brother was the one who, who had the, the whole picture in mind ahead of time, who knew where they were going and who was leading the climb, even if he was not always the one who was actually going in front. And he says, this is something like what we picture marriage to be. Both the husband and the wife are working together, and the goal is that both the husband and wife will reach the finish line together. The husband's role is to lead in such a way that both will succeed, but his leadership doesn't always mean that he will be in front or always be getting his way. Sometimes he is called to lead from below. But even then, his calling is to lead and to love his wife. So we pointed out some of the similarities last week. We said uh, we are looking at this one command for wives to submit. Uh, and we said, again, the big picture is that in our marriages, husband and wife uh, take their role that the Lord has assigned to them in order that we are acting out the drama of redemption. That just as Christ loved his bride, the church, and gave himself up for her, so the husband is called to love his wife and to give himself up for her And the wife is called to submit as the church submits to Christ. We noted something very important that in some ways these two roles of leading and submitting are not as different as they appear at first. That the wife in her call to submit is called to humble herself and to set aside her own desires in order that she might submit to the leadership of her husband. Meanwhile, the husband is called to humble himself and to set aside some of his own desires in order that he might sacrificially love his wife as Christ has loved the church and given himself for her. So there's, there's similarities in these roles. There's also differences. They're not identical roles. They're not the same. The Bible does teach that the husband is the leader. He's the head of the wife. And he's given a responsibility of exercising that headship for the good of his wife and for the good of the family. Now, that's what we're going to to look at in more detail in verse 19. The verse says very simply, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So three points come out of that. Number one, husbands, love your wives. Number two, and do not be harsh with them. And then our third point, I just want to look together at some examples of what this loving Christian Christ-like leadership looks like. So number one, husbands, love your wives. Husbands, love your wives. Now, we observed last week that if we're going to look somewhere to find a model for marriage that we as Christians can, can really subscribe to, that we don't find any, no matter what sort of piece of our, our world today we look at, we only find it in the gospel. We only find it in, in the picture of Christ loving, serving, and giving himself for his bride, which is the church. In fact, one thing that's interesting, as Paul is writing this in his first century context, we recognize that that pretty much everyone in his context would have agreed with him that the husband is the head, that the husband has authority in the family. And Paul is not refuting that. Instead, what he does is he redefines what authority looks like. If he's speaking to a culture which agrees, yes, the husband does have authority, He doesn't refute that. Instead, he redefines what the nature of authority is. And he says, authority in the family, just as in the church, is to be a sacrificial authority, exercised for the good of the other, to build up those who you have authority over, to demonstrate the nature of the love of God. In fact, when we say this truth that we believe, that the husband is called to lead. Well, that's true, we affirm the truth of that statement, but we have to recognize that in saying that it's so easy to mishear what is trying to be communicated, that, that it's easy for us to get a, a wrong definition of leadership or a wrong understanding of authority because we've taken those just from uh, you know, our worldly sur- our, our surroundings, our context, uh, uh, where we are rather than from uh, how the Bible describes this kind of authority. One of the greatest pictures, I think, of sacrificial authority comes in Philippians chapter 2. It's one of the most poignant illustrations of how a husband's love for his bride takes shape. And it's describing the love of Jesus for his bride, for the church. Let me read uh, Philippians chapter 2, and I'll just start with verse 3. Now, he's not talking specifically about marriage here. He's talking about Jesus, but Jesus is our model, For a husband's loving leadership. And here's Philippians 2, starting in verse 3. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. This is a passage about humility, which is a passage about love. Humility is one of the, the first ingredients in love. And it shows that here is Jesus, and he sees that his bride is in trouble. And so, what does he do? Well, it says first, although he he knows himself to be God, he is in the form of God, it says that consideration is not uppermost in his mind. He said that is not what his bride needs. Instead, he will take the form of a servant so that he can serve his bride. He sees that she needs help. He needs to do what is necessary to help her, so he humbles himself that he can serve her. And in doing so, he humbles himself all the way to the cross, laying down his own life in order that she might live. And that passage is given to us as an example of love, of an example of here is Jesus, the ultimate husband, in his model of love for his bride, humbling himself, serving his bride. He, He is a husband whose first consideration is not his own status or his own identity, that he was, as Jesus, he was God it's not his needs it's the needs of his bride that come first that he will see his bride and his question is what is required of him that he can help that he can serve her you see this is this is a picture of the gospel right the gospel is a story about Jesus humbling himself in order to love and serve his bride humbling himself in order that he can do what she needs what is best for her and the teaching on marriage is that the husband's role in a marriage is to reflect that. It's to reflect what Jesus has done. Uh, You remember, perhaps, from from Mark 10, the disciples are walking along the way with Jesus and James and John ask one of the most presumptuous questions they could possibly ask. They're they're just walking along on the road and and they come, you know, sidle over to Jesus. Maybe they kind of scoot a little away from the others and say, Jesus, Can we just sort of sort this out ahead of time? When you are reigning in glory on your throne, will you just grant to one of us to sit on your right hand and the other to sit on your left hand? They're trying to call dibs on glory with Jesus. They want to share that with him. And why not, right? They're among his first disciples. They've been with him throughout the course of his earthly ministry. Certainly, they haven't done all that for nothing, right? They have to have earned some kind of status that they can now use for their own privilege. What does Jesus say? Jesus totally redefines for them the nature of what their authority is meant to look like and what all authority is like. He, He says to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them, and the great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man himself came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I hope we have some great husbands in this church. That is, husbands who are willing to become the servant of all. Husbands who desire to be first by making themselves last. Husbands who take this kind of authority that Jesus has described, he says, listen, among the Gentiles in the world, authority is exercised for the benefit of the one who has the authority. It's so that they can secure their own good, their own status, their own blessings. He says, in the kingdom of God, it's completely flipped. The whole purpose of authority within the kingdom is to give the blessings to those who you have authority over, to serve them. You are first, therefore you become last. It's a leadership from below, a servant leadership. And as husbands who are called to be leaders within their families, that means that we are to be husbands who are willing to use our authority to bless our wives, not to bless ourselves. That means being husbands who have been on the receiving end of that kind of love in order that they know how to give that kind of self-giving love. That means as husbands, we are called to be looking for ways to love our wives. Sometimes, all the time, this is meant to be very practical. Right? Sometimes we, we can hear this sort of uh, very you know this is high flute and this is theological talk. This is, this is as Christ loved the church, and yet it's meant to be very practical within the spheres of our marriages. It means that we are, as husbands, are called to be looking for ways that we can demonstrate it. Asking questions like, what needs does my wife have that I can give myself in order to meet? These are meant to be practical. Maybe asking things like, how can I inconvenience myself in order to convenience my wife? Right, that That's the opposite of the worldly conception of authority, which is that that Other people should inconvenience themselves in order to convenience me. Jesus says, no, the Son of Man inconvenienced himself in order that he might convenience others. How can we do that? How can we look for needs, spiritual needs, practical needs? Sometimes the needs are emotional needs. A loving husband is called not to roll his eyes and, and bail out at this point, but to study his wife, to know how he can love her best. Now, we said one thing last week. With respect to defining the wifely submission in the marriage, we said it's best probably not to go into too many details and particulars. We don't define submission in terms of what the role is, and it's the same with a husband leading his wife and loving his wife. It's not about who balances the checkbook, who does the dishes, or who cooks dinner. Although each one of those might be seen not as a chore, but an opportunity to love, but but every relationship we understand is is different and is unique, such that a given act that could be very meaningful and significant for one relationship might simply be insignificant in another. So we're not going to define what it means to love your wife in terms of specific duties and specific actions, but it's our job as husbands to seek to understand what is needed, to study our wives, to know them, in order that we might love them. The calling is for husbands to love their wives, and second, to not be harsh with them. Not being harsh with them. This is, this is the verse. Husbands, love your wives, and do not be harsh with them. I, I, in my mind, I hear the first part I hear, husbands, love your wives, and I immediately fill in the blank, as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Right? I immediately go to Ephesians 5. Well, which is very significant, but Colossians is, is different and it's focusing on something that we need to hear. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Why? I think Paul is probably anticipating that what he has just said in verse 18, he's just given the instruction that wives are to submit to their husbands, he knows that uh, that husbands will be tempted to take advantage of that. And if, if wives are called to submit, he knows that there will be husbands who are tempted to take advantage of that for their own good and their own convenience. In fact, is that not part of why the first command to wives to submit is so hard for them to hear because they instinctively fear that, that if they take on that role that they will be taken advantage of, that they will be walked over, that they will be doormats? Well, We know, indeed, how sinfully easy it is for husbands who are called to lead to get drunk even on that little bit of power and to think about how they can use that as an advantage for themselves rather than using it as an advantage for their wife. And so the command immediately to the husband is, Do not be harsh. The goal of your authority, the goal of a husband having headship and being called to lead in the marriage is, is not to be harsh, but to be self-giving and self-sacrificial and loving. In some ways, this is a great verse because it's very practical. Right? Like we said, the, the idea of has Christ loved the church can be hard to actually put hands and feet on that sometimes, but this is very clear. That if you as a husband are being harsh with your wife, that you are not loving her as you are. Being harsh is a sin. Being harsh is the Gentile conception of authority, right? Lording it over. That's secular authority. I've heard stories of husbands who are harsh, who essentially try to to justify bullying in the name of spiritual authority and headship. The Bible never excuses that. It never gives any excuse for bullying in the name of spiritual authority or leadership or headship. In fact, it teaches us that that kind of harsh leadership is the very opposite of biblical Christ-like loving leadership. In fact, 1 Peter has a paragraph. It's kind of a parallel sort of thing. It talks about wives and husbands. Uh, but the, the word to husbands is this. It's in 1 Peter 3, 8. Nope, 7, 3, 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, we hear it again there. Peter recognizes both the equality as well as the difference. He says that they are heirs with you of the grace of life, that, that women and men together are equal in worth and value, in salvation and in grace. But he also says, he, he recognizes that women are the weaker vessel. And that's usually true, isn't it? And At least in a physical sense that, yes, women are, are created different. They are often weaker. They are often smaller. And therefore, there is this temptation that is open for a husband to use his physical dominance, to use his physical strength in order to intimidate and to bully and to get his way. But what Peter calls husbands to is not only to loving their wives, but he says that they should show honor to their wives because they are the weaker vessel. He says that in God's household economy, that it's the weaker vessel who is to receive the honor, not the stronger vessel. Honor is given not to the one who leads. Honor is given to the one who submits. And that's what we mean when we talk in the church about this idea of servant leadership. That in a a worldly conception of power and authority, authority is given for the blessing of the one who has authority to use it for their own good. In In the Bible's picture, authority is given that you might bless those under your care. That you might use your authority to serve. And Peter not only affirms that, he affirms it strongly. He goes so far, you heard it at the end of that verse, he goes so far as to say that the husband who does not give honor to his wife, that his prayers may be hindered. That is, that is a startling consequence. That for the husband who does not love in this self-sacrificial kind of way, who does not give honor to his wife, that their... Prayers may indeed be hindered, that you are failing to treat your wife as a joint heir of the grace of life in that instance. He shows how serious a matter it is for husbands to be loving. I heard a pastor say one time that the measure of your spiritual maturity is not what you pretend to be in front of others. The measure of your spiritual maturity is what you are in front of your wife, and nothing more. How can we claim to know and to cherish the love of Christ for sinners like us husbands if we are going to be harsh with those the Lord has entrusted to our care? Now, that's a, that, that's a, a stern word, perhaps even a, a harsh word for us to hear sometimes because husbands, we know we are guilty. We know that we find ourselves, we hear a reflection of ourselves in that verse, do we not? We know there have been times we have been harsh, perhaps even this morning. What do we do? Where do harsh husbands go for help? We need to remember that that Jesus is by far the best marriage counselor for us in this regard. We must go to him. We must sit at his feet because harshness is a form of pride. And the way to break pride is, is specifically this. It is to go deep in the grace of Jesus towards sinners. In order to break us of our pride and therefore to break us of our habits of harshness, we need to go deep in understanding our own sin. And not only our own sin, but then to understand that that Jesus has loved us in the midst of our sin and has been tender with us, has sacrificed himself for us. He has not been harsh, but he has allowed the harshness to fall on Himself, in order that we might receive the mercy. If you know a Savior and you know that He knows your sin, but He has never been harsh with you, then that humbles us, that breaks us of our pride and harshness. Because here's the reality you cannot be thankful for the grace of God in Christ and simultaneously harsh. It's one or the other. Those, those two things will never coexist. You cannot be thankful and humbled by the grace of God towards you in Christ, even while you were yet a sinner, and also be harsh with somebody else at the same time. And when we've experienced, in a deep way, the love of Christ, that changes our heart towards others. Grace always defeats harshness. We are called not to be harsh. Now, as the third point, what I want to do is to give a couple of examples of to call to husbands to exercise this loving, non-harsh leadership with their wives. I think it's, it's helpful for us not only to talk about it, not only to hear the, the imperatives, the commands, the instructions, but to kind of have some examples, to have some pictures in mind. And these sort of work two ways because I think there's two temptations that every husband faces. There's the temptation to be harsh or authoritarian, that is, to lead without any love. And then there is the temptation to love without any leadership. To lead without love or to to love without leading, that's abdicating. And so here's some some illustrations to help us know what it means to act out the drama of redemption in our own homes. First, consider Robertson McQuilkin. You may know his name, you may not. He's spent 22 years as the president of Columbia Bible College and Seminary. That was 1968 to 1990. He was the president, very successful in in the academic world, in, in evangelicalism. He had attained this very high position of influence. He was respected. He was a leader. But in 1990, he resigned his position as president because his wife was going into the advanced stages of Alzheimer's and he felt that he needed to be at home to help take care of her. He said when he was around, his wife was usually happy, but that she was never happy if he was gone. that throughout the day, if he was at his office, which was about a mile from their house, he said she would attempt to walk to his office sometimes 10 times per day, just to be with him, and, and he would find that her feet at the end of the day were bloody because of it. But she would be panicked without him, panic-stricken, if he was not there. And so he resigned so he could stay home and be with his wife. Many men would pity having to do that. Here he was at at the height of his influence, the height of his life's work, the president of a a seminary and a college, and he was resigning. In fact, he said there were men who advised him to put his wife in an institution so that he could give himself to serving the kingdom and continue this call that, that apparently he had from the Lord. But in fact, what McQuilkin did is what the Bible calls true leadership sacrifice your own desires in order to serve the good of your wife. McQuilkin said in his resignation speech and you can, you can find clips of it online and it's very moving. He, he says the decision to retire and to take care of his sick wife was one of the easiest decisions he ever had to make. He said not only had he promised 42 years earlier that he would care for her and love her in sickness and in health till death do they part. But he said that it's not that he has to quit and stay home with his wife. It's that he gets to. That's a picture of the gospel love that Jesus models in his love for his bride, that husbands are called to emulate in their love for their brides. That a husband loves his wife most clearly, most effectively, and most Christ-likely when he lives most sacrificially. Leadership that fails to be loving to your wife when love is needed the most is really no Christian leadership at all. Now, Here's a second illustration, and this comes from from Tim Keller's marriage book. I mentioned something from it last week, his book, The Meaning of Marriage. Tim Keller is known today, you probably know, he was a pastor in New York. Uh, He planted a church in Manhattan that grew very large, and he was known as a an insightful pastor and, and someone who could articulate the faith in a way that was compelling to young urban professionals. But back in the 1980s, he was not well-known. He was a, a professor at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, and that was the time when the, the denomination was, had this desire to plant a new church in Manhattan, and some people had approached him and asked him if he would be willing to move to Manhattan to plant a church. Well, he said initially when he heard that, he wanted to do it. He was excited. But his wife, Kathy, did not want to do it. She knew how hard it was to work in Manhattan, to plant a church in Manhattan, and to live there. She said she feared raising their three children in the big city. Uh, She didn't want to go. She wasn't excited about city life in general. So he asked, what do you do when the vote is one-to-one? In a marriage, there's never a third person to break the tie. What do you do? So Tim said, Tim Keller, he said he knew that he was, as the husband, his role as the head, as the leader was to make that decision, to be responsible. But at the same time, he wanted to be sensitive to his wife's concerns. He was a, a godly husband. And so what does he do? He says, well, honey, if you don't want to go, we won't go. Now here's what his wife said in response, she said, oh no you don't, you can't put this decision on me, that's abdicating your responsibility to lead. If you think this is the right thing to do, then exercise your leadership and make the choice. Now I thought that was an interesting example, because it could have been spun as a really self-giving, sacrificing way for Tim Keller to exercise you know, this, this Christ-like love and say, listen, we will do what you want to do, and to put that out there. I think that is often one of the ways that husbands are called to love, right? To put their wife's needs first and, and say, we're, we're going to go with your decision. That's one way to break the tie. Uh, but it seems like in this case, his wife Kathy had that wifely intuition that to go that route was not real leadership. And she says that she looks back on his decision. Obviously, he made the decision that they would move there. That's why we have heard of him and why he wrote a book. But he says, or she says she looks back on that decision now as one of the manliest things that he had ever done because he sensed that this was where God was calling them. And so he decided to lead his family in following God's call even though he was scared and they had some concerns about it. And Kathy says that was his job was to lead and her job was to get herself happy in the Lord until she could fully submit and and give herself to supporting his leadership. Sometimes the temptation for the husband is to be passive and to allow the wife to be the leader because we're afraid. Jesus calls on us each to submit to the role that he has given us and to act out the drama of redemption. In this way, the husband is called to to model self-giving love, and that is the kind of love that can act out of a conviction about what is best and act on it out of courage, even when you're afraid. Men, we need to consider what a privilege we have to love our wives in a self-giving, sacrificial, Christ-like way acting out the drama of redemption, modeling the love of Christ on our own small little stages. Here's one last illustration, and this one comes from Brian Chappell's marriage book. He mentions uh, being witness in his church to one particularly bad marriage. He said the wife was struggling with several addictions which were hurting the family. He said the husband was getting plenty of advice from his friends that he should just walk away. Staying was not worth it. And so Brian Chapel asked him, why was he staying? And here's what the husband said. Well, my kids need a mom, but more importantly, they need to know their savior. How will they know what it means that we have a heavenly father who loves us even when we disobey, if their own father won't love and forgive their mother when she sins against him? You see, he had the big picture of marriage. He saw his role as husband to be the one who models Christ-like love towards those who sin against him. That's acting out the drama of redemption. That's loving his wife as Christ has loved the church. Not just sacrificially, but that's a part of it, but also this, loving her despite all the reasons why he shouldn't. Isn't that the love of Christ for us? When you love a person and continue to give yourself for them, despite all the evidence that they are simply an unlovable person. Because God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When you consider all of the reasons that we give Christ on a daily basis to stop loving us, and then consider that that none of them have ever changed his mind, that he continues to love us. He continues to give himself humbly for us, to become the servant of all on our behalf. How can we then take the proud position of refusing to love another simply because they have sinned against us? If we as husbands are called to anything in Christ-like love, it is to continue loving our wives even when they sin against us, even when they are giving us reasons to stop loving them. We say, we will carry on. Because we have made a promise. And because we are called to take the role of Christ-like love, acting out that drama in our marriages. That we love them even when they sin against us. That's our calling. That's the calling to husbands, to love your wives in a way that is nothing less than imitating the very love of Christ towards sinners. And as husbands, that's a high calling. And the reality is we can never do that unless we have first been on the receiving end of that kind of love? How can we know what that is like unless first we have known that Jesus has loved us in that way? And in doing so, he has broken down our pride. In doing so, he has given us a model for humbling ourselves, for taking the position of last, of becoming the servant of all, of loving as he has loved us. We must first go and sit at the feet of Jesus husbands and wives. There's no greater marriage counselor than Jesus Christ and he invites us to come to him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Christ. Thank you that you loved us even while we were yet sinners and you gave your Son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins, not for ours only, but for the sins of the entire world. Lord, we pray that you would take now your word by the power of your Spirit, press it on our hearts Cause it to take root. Lord, protect us from the weeds that would choke it out or from the sun that would kill it with heat and with with stress. May may your word take root. May it grow. May it bear fruit in our lives, in our homes, in our marriages, 30, 60, 100 times that which has been sown in order that uh, we might thrive in the love of Christ and that Jesus may be glorified. We pray in his name. Amen.